Hi, I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. We're friends and independent filmmakers. I'm an editor and sound designer. Devin is a cinematographer and colorist. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Steven Soderbergh's decade and change working with digital cameras after 20 years of working on 35mm film and how that's changed the way he shoots movies like Contagion. Welcome to Film Formally. I think it's first worth noting, so we say Steven Soderbergh's cinematography, and that's not just shorthand. He is actually serves as his own cinematographer on virtually all of his films. Yes, Peter Andrews does right? not exist. Right. Yeah, that's just his pseudonym. So when did that get started? That technically got started with Schizopolis in 1996, but really started in earnest with Traffic in 2000. Um, I believe he's shot everything since then as Peter Andrews. Um, and I think his filmmaking has visually gotten significantly more interesting as a result. He is very idiosyncratic. Do you, do you think there's certain tendencies throughout his career that you can see since Traffic and that makes him idiosyncratic? Or is he just an evolving beast? Like he's a really diverse guy. He's, I, I'd say he's both of those things. He's incredibly diverse. Um, like Ocean's Eleven bears very little visual resemblance to Unseen, um, except for a both have a ton of color and experimentation in them. Right. I forgot he shot Ocean's Yeah, I know. That's insane. One of the hallmarks of his, I think, his career throughout has been a, a willingness to experiment with image texture. Um, everything from the incredibly strident color filters and traffic to a typical glossy red blown out highlights and stuff like Contagion and Haywire iPhone 7 converted to look almost like film in Unsane. He used a film emulation lookup table there along with film grain to uh, give it a texture I've never seen, I think, in a film. So that's, I think, if I had to say a defining element to his cinematography since then, it's that. And I think that does go hand in hand with a lot of other elements of his filmmaking as a director. And we can kind of get into those. I'd like to especially focus on his digital work. Um, He has cycled through a number of shooting formats since he became his own cinematographer. He shot, I think, virtually everything between Traffic and Ocean's 13 on film, with the exception of Full Frontal, which was shot on on the Canon XL1S, which is as... As someone who's actually used the Canon XL2, a tremendously uh, visually <laughs> unappealing camera in the traditional sense. Um, and starting with Shea, he switched from 30, using 35 to the RED digital camera system. Uh, RED being a quite high-end, um, high-resolution digital uh, system uh, that was pretty much the first major knockout success of the digital revolution in terms of convincing high-profile 35mm filmmakers to switch over. Uh, Steven Soderbergh and David Fincher were two that come to mind as particularly high-profile users. Um, I think Fincher's first red film was The Social Network. And Soderbergh has mostly stuck with the red since, with, I believe, the exceptions of Unsane and High Flying Bird, which were both shot using the iPhone. 
I think Che is a really interesting start for him using the red, because if you look at just a random scene out of Che, what you see is mostly like pretty conventional to early digital, where especially in part one, there's like highlights that are a little bit blown up and clipping kind of awkward ways, quite heavily uh, saturated. Part two, though, is a very different looking film because it's undersaturated. It's a different aspect ratio. And even though taken on their own, both parts are not especially unconventional or striking visually. I think they do kind of form an interesting mission statement of him being willing to change up the aesthetic that he's using on a dime to suit the project or even the part of the project that he's working on. I think that really uh, falls in line with Soderbergh's uh, proclivity for really not prizing kind of compositional and filmic perfection. The very fact that he is so willing to clip highlights shows us that he's more interested in decisive uh, visual schemes rather than trying to iron out all the kinks of his visual schemes. What do you mean by clip highlights? What is that? So clipped highlights are one of the hallmarks of digital image capture. Um, We can get into the weeds on this. Mm -hmm. Digital image sensors, which are what digital camcorders use, um, deal with light in a very different way to 35 millimeter, or I should call it celluloid film. There's also 16, 8mm, 70mm, etc. Celluloid film is is made out of silver halide crystals, um, which block out light as they are exposed to light. They, they uh, increase in opacity. That's how you get a negative. That's how they measure light, right? And then that image is reversed and you get a, you know, a positive image that looks like what you're used to seeing on a film screen. Digital image sensors actually have little photosites. Um, they are made of an array of square pixels, essentially, that measure the amount of light that hits them and then convert that to a charge. And that charge becomes the info that is sent to the computer inside the camera that is, you know, is then translated into images we can see and interpret with our eyes. However, all these photosites have a limit how much light they can read. After a while, they cannot differentiate between really bright and really, really bright. And that leads to what's called highlight clipping, featureless areas of pure white. Film does not do that. It quote unquote rolls off into highlights smoothly. Highlights on film look more like it's almost like been burned through is how I can best put it. And digitally, it generally looks like a hard line between very bright gray and white. Um, Soderbergh makes liberal use of these clipped highlights. Um, as a cinematographer, you're usually trained to limit highlight clipping as much as possible. Uh, Soderbergh clearly doesn't, I don't think he's ever really <laughs> adhered to that rule. I think virtually all, all his digital work is rife with that. Right. I think, I think a really good example, if you just happen to have it on hand, is if you look at the opening scene of Haywire. The windows in that. A character steps into a cafe in this sort of snowy area. And outside the windows, you can very clearly see like parts of the snow that are just plain bright white. There's a sharp line between those bright white areas and the slightly less bright white areas around them. Or take the opening scene of Contagion. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow's in the foreground. There are uh, fluorescent bulbs green in the background and they are pure white. You cannot make out the bulbs. It's just blobs of white and Soderbergh most other filmmakers would avoid that at all costs they would add a bunch of light to Paltrow's face and then expose downwards but no Soderbergh just lets them blow out and he's never really stopped doing that even when the red epic which is what Contagion was shot on has pretty good highlight detail and um, he chooses to let that happen Uh, why do you think he might do that I think it depends a lot on the film and I think 
one of the important techniques that Soderbergh uses a lot is depending on the film, he will soften his highlights. Yeah, he uses a variety of softening filters, which are basically planes of glass you put in front of your lens with various <laughs> stuff applied to it. For example, uh, you might have optical softening filters, which is dozens, hundreds of little lenslets, tiny little lenses etched into the glass, or you might just have what's essentially very expensive sandblasted glass. Yeah. So for example, in Che, it, he doesn't do that at all. He doesn't soften it up. And in Contagion, he doesn't soften it at all. He actually, uh, there is softening Contagion. Um, yeah. I think the most obvious example is the gymnasium scene with Kate Winslet. Um, oh, there yeah. is a lot of softening background there. Um, and you can see it in the streetlights of the exterior scenes. If I had to guess, these look like some sort of smear filters. Um, you get these weird vertical highlight smears, but it's hard to say. I can't find any actual info on that, but I'm sure that but there's I been think, some use. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think his second film he shot digitally was, I think, The Girlfriend Experience. Yes. And that's when he really started using them. And to me, on The Girlfriend Experience, the softening reads as him emulating film. And The Girlfriend Experience is mostly a more or less conventionally shot movie. Um, um, there is some digital softening there. There's this airplane scene about 10 minutes in that's been, it's like the opposite of a clarity filter. It's been digitally softened and you can really see the difference. Um, and he doesn't right. try and hide it. It's very obviously like, it looks almost like a very bad Instagram filter. Right. But then his next movie after the girlfriend experience is the informant. And that's when things, to me, that's when digital Soderbergh really starts to get interesting where he starts doing things digitally that you can't really do in film or is much, much harder to do in film. Yeah, I agree. He softens the hell out of everything in that movie. The colors are super sickly, unreal looking. He just pushes certain colors in the frame way, way, way beyond the saturation of others, especially usually um, blues and greens. And everything's just been so softened and the colors are so unnatural. You get these like weird blue green skies. So you get the combination of those sort of scuzzy sort of almost brand label colors combined with that heavy, heavy softening, putting a gloss on everything, which makes for a pretty intuitive way to film a satire of corporate America. I think that kind of tendency probably peaked with Behind the Candelabra, which uh, has endless endless uh, almost overpoweringly distracting softening done um it looks like it's been done with a variety of filters and stockings you can actually put a stocking over your lens to do that that's what Janusz kaminski does in lost Spielberg. but he kept pushing that envelope over and over and over the nick too has a ton of that i think a parallel we can see between soderbergh's use of digital cinematography and his deployment of extremely attractive hollywood stars i think one of the hallmarks of soderbergh's career to this point has been finding ways to tweak and undercut um, the kind of Hollywood star image. This is everywhere. Magic Mike. Oh, yeah. In Magic Mike, he, he shoots everything outside of dance sequences, I think, or, or almost everything, especially exteriors and stuff in people's homes. He shoots with a double straw filter that just puts yellow all over the frame and makes everything look like there's a layer of urine over it which is pretty striking for a movie that was sold heavily for its colorful, high contrast, glossy dance sequences and advertising. 
Or a contagion where uh, the first shot is of, as far as I can tell, unmade up Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, at the time, one of the most famous stars in the world, who is shot in one of the most unflattering ways I've ever seen any major Hollywood star shot, who then dies five minutes in. Um, And I think that uh, pretty much sums up how he uses stars in that movie. So, or in Haywire, where a parade of famous male actors get their ass kicked by an MMA fighter. Soderbergh loves that, undermining our expectations for what the people we recognize on screen will do. That's To me, that really feels of a piece with his digital filming, where he does all he can to de-glamorize most of the people he shoots, unless he really, really wants to go far with that and glamorize them to the point of almost self-parody and stuff like behind the convoluble. Yeah, he uses very low contrast. And often when you have low contrast, you can sort of offset it partly with color differentiation, but he also often tends towards fairly monochromatic palettes as well. Yeah, and I would say monochrome is a key word here, and I want to differentiate that from grayscale. Monochrome meaning most of his shots will have lots of color. They'll just have one color. You can see that probably most famously in traffic where each of the separate stories in that hyperlink narrative is given in one color, yeah. right? You know. And um, similarly, Contagion has that. Um, it's a bit less tied to the individual narratives and more just every space has its own extremely strident color, you know, green, blue for the gymnasium, et cetera, et cetera. And that really flies in the face of you know, traditional ideas of how to shoot actors. Um, as a colorist, you are trained to stick to skin tones usually. You know, and this can be seen in Contagion, where despite the fact that the color is less tied to individual plot strands, it's tied to locations, right? So you have the blue gymnasium, the yellow green, you know, CDC offices, and that lends a lot of um, tonal rhythm to the film, I think, and a lot of instant geographic readability, right? You know where you are. Right. Uh, one question I do have, and this ties into the uh, actors not being very flatteringly shot is in a lot of Soderbergh's movies, and it's it's very prevalent in Contagion, characters will have pretty underexposed faces. In other words, their, their faces are quite dark on screen, um, but the highlights still remain quite bright. How would you describe that? Is that a flat contrast curve? Is that, what, what would that be? I'd say it's more of a lack of willingness to light the actors in a conventionally attractive way, to shoot scenarios where the reality of the lighting takes precedence over the need to massage that lighting, right? If I was to light a scene with an actor in the foreground and a very bright window in the background, I might add a very bright light, you know, like some sort of 3000 watt, you know, HMI or something on the actor's face to even that light out, right? Soderbergh is much less willing to do that. And I think he foregrounds that for the sake of I think there's a lot of reasons but in Contagion it feels like it's intentionally trying to make everyone look as horrible and sickly as possible at all times yeah I think it's worth noting that especially after he starts making movies digitally a lot of Soderbergh's movies are sickly looking movies about sick people right I mean uh, you have most obviously contagion that, that, that Liberace, he's no go on <laughs> but you have contagion right you have uh haywire which makes the sort of world of the action spy thriller look a lot less visually appealing i'm not sure exactly how well that stratagem works there but then you have side effects which is on top of that sort of sickly look a very hazy movie that's one where the softening filter gets absolutely cranked up to 11 
and the whole thing just is hazy and sickly and everyone looks terrible in it. And then later on, you have Magic Mike where all the material outside the club is really sickly. And implicitly, that's because they're living in a world where everyone is sort of dehumanized and and sick in a more spiritual way. And then you have Unsane, which obviously is about a mental health facility. And so a lot of his movies that he shoots digitally really benefit from him not being interested in flattering his actors. But another thing I wanted to bring up along those lines is that another reason besides just flattering the actors to shoot actors with somewhat brightly lit faces is so that the actors' faces aren't competing for attention with whatever other highlights there are in the frame. So if there's a lamp in the frame, it's not just this big, bright, glowing spotlight while the actor is just some dark mush in the corner of the frame amongst all the other shadows, right? So that's that's sort of something that Soderbergh plays with. The scene in Haywire I mentioned where there's the snow outside, I think is a good example of him not making that work well because all you can do in that scene is look at the big radioactive glowing white outside the window. But a lot of Haywire and a lot of his other digital movies are quite smart in the way that they use those highlights to compensate where they'll pepper them throughout the frame a bit more liberally so that your eyes not just immediately drawn to a single focal point at the expense of the actor. Or he'll my one of my favorite things he does is he halos the actor. So he puts the light more or less evenly around their body or around their head so that the light is an accentuation. It's an outline for the actor so that our focus stays on that character. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think, uh, I think that's a good breakdown of the composition, unusual compositional tools he uses. Your mention of uh, Unsane got me really thinking about focal lengths because uh, Unsane is fairly Interesting in that um, on a cell phone, you're stuck with a very narrow range of focal lengths. And when I mean, when I mean focal lengths, I mean essentially how far lens is zoomed in. Um, in that if you're on a 20 millimeter lens, you have a very wide field of view. Um, you can see a lot in front of you. The cone of vision is wide. On a 300 millimeter lens, uh, very narrow cone of vision. Uh, it's almost like you're zoomed in very far on something in the distance. In Unsane, it's largely shot on very, very wide focal lengths. So you'll have shots where actors are, as a result of those wide focal lengths, you know, distorted in corners of the frame. Uh, there's one shot that I loved where Claire Foy is lying on a bed and her face is in the bottom left exact corner of the frame. And it is distorted more than I've ever seen any A-list actor distorted. And perfectly matches the moment, right? This character doesn't know whether they're going insane or not. <laughs> and Going uh, insane going unsane their self-perception is being literally and figuratively skewed you know that was fun <laughs> yeah i think unsane and high flying bird are, are a good example of how soderbergh takes digital technology seriously not just in terms of what it directly brings to aesthetics but i think he's just fascinated with the other implications of the form like the commercial democratization of the form that a lot of people talk about shooting a film or two feature films entirely on an iPhone and doing them in completely different styles, I think is a good example of a filmmaker who's taking that completely seriously because in Unsane, you'll see he uses the very wide focal length. I think most of it was shot 18 millimeter on that adapter, but he uses a very, very wide focal length 
that are pretty common to smartphones. And those focal lengths make it pretty hard to shoot close-ups of actors without distorting them because typically in a close-up of an actor, they're filling the screen. And if you're that close to an actor on a wide lens, then you tend to distort them, which might not be what you want. And that's a pretty common way, actually, to suggest a psychological distortion to distort the character in close-up. But Soderbergh doesn't do that most of the time in Unsane. He uses pretty clever methods. Like He will give the actors a lot of what's called headroom, which means that there's a lot of room between the top of the character's heads and the top of frame. Convention is usually to more or less minimize headroom in anything but a very wide shot. But by giving them a lot of headroom, he allows the upper parts of the frame, which are usually the ceilings of this facility, he allows the upper parts of the frame's lines to sort of comment on and complicate the characters. So their headspace above their heads is literally used to get into their headspace. And on the other hand, High Flying Bird, which personally I think is a much less visually successful film, is more or less conventionally framed most of the time. One thing I noticed, though, is um, the aspect ratio. Unseen is shot at a 1.5 to 1 ratio, um, yeah. which is very unusual in films. Very common in still photography, but in films it's uh, hugely uncommon. And then High Flying Bird is shot at Cinemascope, right? 239 mm-hmm. to 1. Yeah, and I actually think that Soderbergh is, in general, a much better u- user of tall aspect ratios. I think his 185 work, his 178 work, and his 1.5 work, in that case, tends to be superior to his Cinemascope work. Um, especially in his later films. I think Logan Lucky is a good example of uh, not what I call his best framing. Um, I have some issues with that film's use of focal lengths and cinemascope in enclosed spaces. Um, I'm not sure that the distortion is an asset in that film in the same way it is in Unsane. I couldn't quite jive with it both instinctually and intellectually. Right, and I think Logan Lucky is an interesting film too because it's the first digital film that he'd made at least since i think the girlfriend experience that looks is a it's a pretty conventional looking movie for the most part like it doesn't have those crazy color washes he's used almost omnipresently since yeah like you see him pushing the exteriors a little more towards the green side than you'd maybe normally expect in a movie with a bunch of a-list actors but for the most part it, it doesn't look that much unlike what you'd expect a regular Hollywood film to look like. And I think that's, and that that brings up another point I want to make, which is that before he went digital, Soderbergh was pretty clearly, I think an extremely capable cinematographer who could shoot movies that didn't look crazily unlike other movies that, that were quite striking, but still didn't look, totally out of line with what you'd expect from a multiplex experience. Yeah. Like, like oceans 11 looks like not unlike something like casino in a lot of ways, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and they're great looking movies though. I would say is more visually unusual movies from his celluloid period are actually his less impressive looking movies. And then that flips on its head in his digital period where the more conventional looking his movies are, or at least the more conventional his sort of aesthetic approaches, the worst looking they tend to be. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not entirely, I haven't really internally resolved that 
in my head, except maybe I wonder if it's a Spielberg thing. that when he switched to digital, he just has this internal tool set for what digital can do. And it's just not uh, unlike someone like famously Roger Deakins, who uses digital tools more or less as, as an extension of the philosophy of photographing for film. He may, might just fundamentally have a different starting point for how he approaches digital, but I'm not sure how to articulate what that starting point would be. I have two thoughts on that. First is on the, you know, almost like the, you can't go home again, aesthetically thing, uh, right. where it feels almost like it could be a Steven Spielberg situation where his formal toolkit has just evolved. He's changed as a human and as an artist and going back is difficult when you've done that. Um, I use the Spielberg comparison because, you know, in the, I'd say around the nineties is when he really started becoming more visually and tonally experimental and darker. <laughs> and then he, you know, he goes back to shoot an Indiana Jones movie with his new cinematographer, Yanish Kaminsky. And I think it's his worst looking film of the past 30 years um, because it feels like he's trying to almost emulate his former self. Uh, and that almost feels like what Logan Lucky is. It's like, Hey, I want to shoot oceans 11 again, but he's almost the muscles that he used to shoot Ocean's Eleven have atrophied right. in lieu of other slightly more unconventional ones. And secondly, I want to expand on the Roger Deakins thing when we get a chance uh, because that whole idea of shooting digital to look like film, I think is an interesting counterpoint to all this. Right. Here's your chance. Okay. <laughs> so I think the Roger Deakins, I would call school of shooting digital, fascinates me as almost a, the flip side of all this. Soderbergh and some other directors, and I think that number is actually dwindling, not increasing, elected to try and create whole new aesthetics digitally. I think the social network was the moment where that clicked for me, where David Fincher used the Red One, a very high resolution digital camera, and then denoised it hugely, which means that he used a computer algorithm to limit the amount of grain in the image to create a very plasticine movie. And it felt like a computer interface turned into a live action film. There was no, there was no texture to anything. And I thought it was gorgeous um, in that ugly Fincher way. I think if we look at the evolution of how digital has evolved in kind of the aficionado slash professional consciousness. Um, In the early 2010s, we had a ton of discourse around uh, the perceived kind of inherent differences between film and digital, where digital was always seen as antiseptic, um, clean, you know, almost sterile. And film was seen as organic, authentic, these, I think, slightly useless adjectives. Um, But what happened with especially the release of the Ari Alexa, Ari being a camera company who was probably the most prominent maker of 35 millimeter cameras in the world, I believe, Um, at least one of them. Um, They made probably, I think, the single most important digital camera for Hollywood, at least, which is the Ari Alexa, which is a camera designed to appeal to people who shoot on 35 millimeter. It has an image texture and color science that attempts to replicate almost this ideal of what film looks like. And... It was designed in consultation with various cinematographers such as Roger Deakins. And of course, a lot of them jumped on board. Um, it almost felt like at the time he jumped 
to that. And then everyone else followed suit because everyone's like, oh, if, if it's good enough for Roger. Right. And since then, we've seen a massive increase in the amount of digital films, prestige films, blockbusters. Um, you know, it's almost universal now. So you had almost the second or third wave of digital filmmaking where we, we started coming closer and closer and closer to replicating the look of film with digital, right? Um, if, if anyone wants to see Steve Yedlin's videos, look him up online. He's uh, Ryan Johnson's cinematographer. I think he is probably the world's best educator on the subject. We, I think in around the mid 2010s, late 2010s, kind of eventually got to a point when you could realistically shoot something on the Ari Alexa and other cameras um, that was almost indistinguishable to an audience from film. And at this point, talking in 2010, 2020, uh, I, we are there. As a result, that kind of impulse to create a parallel aesthetic, I think, has not died, but it's been sidelined. Um, I don't see many major filmmakers still fighting that fight, uh, which I think is pretty tragic. Um, and I include myself among that. Uh, I have spent a lot of time in the past few years learning how to better emulate film. Yeah, I, I think one of the big reasons for that has got to be that sort of a lack of imagination for what a digital aesthetic can create in a narrative setting. Part of that's just got to be the limitations of Hollywood-style narrative filmmaking, right? I, I think one of the filmmakers who has done the best job of busting sort of the notion that a digital aesthetic is inherently more clinical or less, quote-unquote, organic aesthetically is Don Hertzfeld, who made his movie It's Such a Beautiful Day and all of his previous work entirely animated and finished on film and then switched to digital for his World of Tomorrow movies. And those movies are aggressively digital. They completely take full use of the new medium that he's working with. But they're also just as expressive and organic and non-sterile as his other work. They're, they're digital and, and they, they wear the fact that they are made on computers on their sleeve, but they use that as a way to reflect the world that the characters are living in. And I wonder if part of me thinks that the only way you can adapt a new idea is to make it look like an old idea. And I guess that's what we're seeing with digital cinematography now. And I, I wonder if there's ways to incorporate the new ways to use digital cinematography into those more conventional films that isn't just, oh, this looks sterile, this looks sick. And from what I've seen so far, it seems like Soderbergh hasn't quite cracked that nut yet. I think Unsane is a really interesting kind of paradoxical example of this, where it was shot on an iPhone, which probably has more of the qualities we would associate with that digital sterility than anything else, but used a film emulation plugin. Um, to me, it looks like film convert and a grain generator or a grain loop to add this almost patina of filmicness to it. And it's both foregrounding that and the phoneness of it. So you have this weird fusion of, and I think very successful fusion of Elements that we would stereotypically associate with film and elements we stereotypically associate with low-grade consumer video. And to me, that is almost the opposite of what he was doing with stuff like Contagion, where he was borrowing non-textural elements of 35 mil, like depth of field, and combining that with um, an aggressively digital, almost image finishing process, um, which is uh, shows me that he's really thinking about every single part of the image, which is interesting. 
Um, are there any modern films in the past couple of years that you think uh, use digital image capture in a way that doesn't try and overtly emulate film that stand out to you? That stand out to me. Give, give me give me a second to think about that. One comes to mind for me while you think about it, which is um, uh, Celine Scamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which uh, I thought... I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> which you should. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. uh, what she and her cinematographer, Claire Mathan, met, I probably did not. I'm horribly mispronounced your name, Claire. I'm sorry. Uh, do is they, um, it was shot on, I believe, I think it was shot in 8K on the red, which is unusual because it's a period piece. Um, and generally Hollywood cinematographers, or I, not Hollywood, but prestige cinematographers, like I, I would say, try and shoot period pieces on film or something that looks like film. And this emphatically does not look like film. Um, it looks like uh, it's almost totally grainless. Uh, the low light cinematography is clean. Um, the colors do not try and emulate any film stock that I know of. But what it does do is it, I think, tries to emulate the gaze of a painter. Um, doesn't even try and emulate a painting. I think it's trying to emulate how painters see the world. And it subtly tweaks our expectations for what it a period piece might look like to do so. Um, and I think it's incredibly successful with that, but that's the exception. Um, I can't think of many other films in the past year or so that have really impressed me with forging new ways of using digital image capture. I, I, it's kind of a catch 22 of a question to me because if it looks very distinctly digital, if it looks like it's not emulating film and it's in a conventionally shot narrative film, then those things don't aren't compatible with each other at this point in my head, because if it's a conventionally shot film, then it's going to look like something pretty analogous to film. Perhaps. Although I would say that the formal conventions of classical Hollywood cinema don't necessarily rest on that filmicness, right? A lot of it is the blocking, the framing, the continuity. Um, I think a film that maybe breaks all of that could be uh Bygan's long day's journey into the night, which is I've only seen the, 45 minute shot because I have a low attention span. No, I'm going to watch the whole thing. Um, but, but, uh, he uses both the kind of quote unquote limitations of digital, which is, you know, that noise, that kind of clinical feel that people attribute that I take issue with. And I take issue with the idea not the aesthetic and combines that with the possibilities of digital camera placement to create, you know, in, in the case of that film, a 40 minute ish, it's probably longer shot that switches camera movement mediums multiple times and uh, does things that I did not think were possible before watching that film. Oh, and uh, Asako 1 and 2 by Hamaguchi, I think, is, is a very good example of a film that definitely embraces digital filmmaking qualities in its lighting, in its color, in its... Yeah, I, I, I think that's another. Maybe wrapping up, do you have a favorite wait, looking... Wait, 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 wait. What about Cats? <laughs> Cats. Oh my that god. Film, no, let's okay. Like, do I have a favorite one? No. All right. Talk about cats. <laughs> no. <laughs> cats is. I mean, cats is utterly digital. But I think its failings have nothing to do with its digitalness, uh, which actually gets me to like one point, which the is the digital that, fur technology, right? I mean, uh, when we're talking about di digital image capture, I think a lot of people are very quick to blame any perceived failings of an image on that digital image capture when I think that oftentimes they're uh, misdiagnosing and I, I think people should stop that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my thought. 
<laughs> good, good analysis. Good yeah, take. This is deep, deep takes and hot quotes. What's your favorite looking Soderbergh movie? Oof. That's hard. Um, I think pre-digital traffic. Mm. Post-digital, it probably contagion or side effects. It's side effects. <laughs> I don't know, man. Contag- like contagion has those color rhythms that I just love. Contagion might is be side such effects. a cool looking movie. And and maybe it's just side effects looks like no other movie ever made. And it has like some of the most incredible medium and close-up compositions I've ever seen. It's just insane. It's, it's just, it's amazing. It's an amazing, it's an amazing movie in general. It's my favorite Soderbergh, but visually it's so inspiring to me. Would you rank traffic over uh, contagion side effects? Is that your favorite? Is that what you said pre-digital? I have a hard time comparing and yeah. I don't know if I could rank them. You just like <laughs> them because they're wacky, because they're wacky with colors. Yeah, no, that's me, right? I mean, you know me. I, I, I don't heart care. Says, your heart says uh, contagion and traffic, but your head says side effects. I'm an I am a staunchly anti-substance pro-style <laughs> person. I am shallow and vain. And not a very good human being. Well, you want movies that about vain, bad people uh, with shallow depth of field. You know where you go. You watch side effects. <laughs> I, this is true, but that movie has substance, so you know I can't. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I can't endorse it. All right. Well, I guess it's a good time to wrap up. If you want to come on the show or have an idea for a topic we can discuss, you can get in touch by email via filmformally at gmail.com, or you can find us on social media or Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. It really helps other people find it. Next episode, we're going to be discussing what it's like to take a super scaled down approach to making movies with Toronto director Sophie Rambari. See you then.